Good evening, everyone. Um, we are a couple of seconds late tonight, and that's because behind the scenes, uh, myself, Christopher and Andy, were already jumping into the conversation. So tonight is going to be a great, great chat. There's a lot to cover, a lot to talk about. Um, the overall topic tonight is about whiskey writing and awards, and we were already talking about awards. So it just shows how um, important a, a topic of conversation it is, um, that it's on our minds already. Um, whiskey writing covers a wide range of people, you know, you've got bloggers, um, journalists, authors, loads of people under the, the whiskey writing category. And tonight I'm going to be joined by uh, Andy Flat, better known to many of you as the amateur drama. And I'm going to be joined by Christopher Coates, who is the managing editor of Whiskey Magazine. So we're going to be talking about um, how they got into whiskey writing, how they got into whiskey, um, and a little bit about the current... Um, whiskey writing side of things and then we're going to be talking quite a lot about awards both of these guys are involved in the world whiskey awards um and i know many of you will have questions about that so as always please send any any questions that you have let us know what you're drinking tonight it's tuesday night i hope you've had a good start to the week uh, and please welcome the guys in Good evening, gents. Good evening. Good evening. Good to see you guys. How's it going? I was going to. I, I, Andy from Aaron always rings in my head when I ask people, "How are you getting on tonight?" Because I was on a live stream with him, and he said, "This is that moment of the chat where, um, where we pretend that we've not been speaking to each other for ten minutes." <laughs> and exactly. every time I ask people how they're getting on, it's uh, it, that rings in my head. But how are you guys? How 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 have you been? Fantastic. Um, I mean, it's. Uh, I think everybody's had a, a rather interesting year so far. Uh, mine has been uh, certainly been interesting. I was just telling you a second ago that um, I've done far more DIY this year than I thought I was going to do already. So that's good. That's a new skill. A new skill developed for uh, for twenty twenty. So I can't complain. Yeah, I, I do wonder when I look at like the the bookshelf that you've built behind you there, how many joiners are going to go out of business when we go back to normal because everyone's picked up, or I think thinks that they're very good at a new skill, <laughs> but actually in a couple of months time realize they're probably going to spend money getting it fixed. Then, not to say that the shelves aren't looking great, they look fantastic. Well, there's a lot of weight on them. So this all comes crashing down behind me midstream. Uh, you'll, you'll know who to blame. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Andy, what about you? How's your... How's your lockdown been? It's not been too bad. I mean, I've still been continuing with the day job uh, throughout, so I've not really had a, a break as such. But it's been nice to have that normality in amongst. But it's also nice now to be coming out the other side of lockdown, seeing a wee bit of light at the end of the tunnel too. So yeah, I think good. generally everybody's mood's kind of lifting and it's slowly getting back to normal. Definitely. I think I didn't realise, or I didn't think that it had, had affected me so much I guess it was gradual for four months. And then I went for a couple of drinks with some friends um, at the weekend there. And it was just a game changer. I came out of the pub after only an hour and a half, feeling so good about things getting back to normality, seeing a few more people down the street. There's always that thing when you get halfway to the shop and then have to turn back because you've forgotten your face mask. Yeah. I, I, think, I think we'll we'll get there uh, slowly but surely, right? 
Yeah, it's it's going to become the new keys, glasses, wallet, watch. Yeah, <laughs> mask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to get a mask made that's got like a little passport holder or something, and I think that would be the way to go. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, mask. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, let's get into it because we were already talking, um, and Chris, I had to cut you off halfway through what you were telling me, and it was all very interesting. So I'm very uh, keen to get into the the bones of the evening. But first of all, what have you got in your glasses tonight? I'm seeing a couple of well-charged glasses. So what are you drinking tonight? Go ahead, Andy. Well, I, I thought I'd stay somewhat on brand. So I've got a Tomato Legacy. Ah, good man. Lovely. Good man. I have made it into highball, just for a bit more refreshment. Ah, Fantastic. there you go. That's the way to do it. Um, legacy, it's versatile is, is probably the one word that I've used for it. It's a beautiful highball drink. Well, I personally drink a lot of it with ginger ale. And rather worryingly, my wife has taken the taste to it in uh, whiskey sours. So the the staff uh, purchasing is going through the roof at the moment. But yeah, well enjoyed. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember very well when uh, when when Legacy uh, when Legacy launched because I think that had been the time that um, I was still working at the Scotch Whiskey Experience in Edinburgh, and right. uh, I remember very well when 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 that when that launched and uh, that was a that was a one of the one of the first um, non-age statement products that I saw coming in there that got real attention very very quickly um, for, yeah. for how versatile it was and and and, and a you know and a great price point as well. So. Certainly, certainly yeah. a program to be jumping in with on the highball there, Andy. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am as well. I've got my little Glen Cairn glass, and now all I want is a highball. I'm very, very jealous. But um... <laughs> that's what happens, though, isn't it? See, see, you, you're all on the neat whiskey, and then somebody, somebody gets the highball, and then suddenly you all feel parched. <laughs> yeah, you, you're, you're going raking through the performance. There'll be someone calling me a heretic for putting soda in a whiskey any minute now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure they'll be there somewhere. But hey, you drink it the way you enjoy it. But no, to your point there, um, when a couple of weeks, ago, well, a couple of months back now, we were redoing tasting notes. You know, um, myself and one of my colleagues, Scott Fraser, and we um, we very often do the, the, the tastings and the master classes and things. And it's very easy when you're doing that to kind of run through the 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 motions. You know, you're still trying to manage a room and think about what you're going to talk about next. So the tasting notes fly out your mouth without actually really assessing what you're drinking. So we occasionally go back to them and we'll spend a morning nosing and tasting these drams. And Legacy knocked us away. It was just, just couldn't get over how complex it was. And I think it touches on your point there, Christopher. You know, it's a non-age statement, um, less than £30, but it's got that little bit of virgin oak in it. It's got that little bit more complexity. It's forty-three percent. It starts to offer a few things, and I'm, I'm a I'm a really really big fan of it. Yeah, it's definitely one of one of those whiskies that I remember talking to people at the time um, about the uh, about the fact that if you if you want to talk about the, the marriage of distillery character and wood, it's a, a without sort of veering too far. Obviously, you can if it's something too young or or, uh, or has too little maturation character, it can start veering into uh, into sort of immature notes. But this is that perfect balance between maturity and distillery character uh, at a young age, and I certainly certainly liked it for that at the time. Yeah, yeah, big time. What about you? What, what's in your glass? 
Um, well, from, from one heretic drinking a highball to another, I'm drinking a blend. So I'm definitely going to I'm definitely going to have to be uh, to be kicked out um, because that's that's the favourite thing uh, that people love to say to you when you when you find out that you work with whiskey. It's oh god, you you don't drink you don't drink blends, do you? But um, although it's not a very usual blend, it's um it's not a luxury whiskey. Um, that's what I've got here from Compass Box at the moment. So. Uh, it's uh, we we moved house uh, a little while ago and it was lurking in a box and uh, until very recently when I started unpacking so that was a, a nice find. That is a great find. That is one of those things that as people involved in whiskey you, you stumble into a room or you unpack a box and you you find something that you've totally forgotten about and that is just a wonderful moment as well. Uh, but that actually touches on something Andy that you were talking about. You asked a question, I believe it was on Facebook the other day there, you know, what is your go-to blend? Uh, what what blend do you drink? And I think um, it's a conversation that's been had um, a bit more recently. I know that uh, Roy over at Aquavita uh, did a session about blends, you know, and talking about how good they can be. But a couple of about a week or so ago, I went for a walk with some with some mates, and of course, I had my hip flask with me and had a blend in it that was produced by the guys at Iron Distillery, and gave them it all and said, "Oh, here you go, nice little blend." And it, the, the feedback was, that's quite smooth for a blend, for a blend, for a blend. And it's a surprising thing because originally the whole point of blends was to be smooth, you know, and I don't know where that's maybe got lost over the years or has it been lost in perception. But, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot to be said for blends. And um, nine times out of ten, when I'm in a, a local bar or a, just a, a, a pint pub, it's a a blend that I'll drink nine times out of ten. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the antiquary that your that your company produces is is one of the blend. I mean, that that's uh, that's definitely one of the blends that got me into drinking, got me into drinking blends. Um, yeah. It's 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 certainly the blend that a lot of the uh, the I, I live in Leith and a lot of the old boys around here drink drink right. uh, antiquary uh, with their with their with their little half a heavy as well. Yeah, yeah, cracking stuff, cracking stuff. Yeah, fantastic. Now. We've got, like I say, we've got a lot to talk to tonight. We're talking about blends, we're talking about highballs, we're talking about various different uh, things of whiskey. I've got a Glencairn with Tomatin 12 in it tonight. Um, how did you get into whiskey? Because it, we're all involved in various levels now, and it's such a big part of both of your lives. How did you first get into it? Was there a whiskey that made you want to investigate it a little bit more, or was it something else? Um. Well, I I grew up in a household that drank fam a famous grouse and coke, so so there was always that was always around the house. Um, I also grew up um, very short distance from Glen Turret Distillery, so I went there quite a few times as a child. Uh, you know, when people would visit from people would come and visit, and uh, and we'd we'd take them there as as one of the sort of local tourist attractions. So I have a lot of very fond memories of you know sticking my head over the edge of edge of washbacks and and getting a big whiff of a, you know of the various aromas you you get around a distillery and you know the the, the feel of be, the feeling of being in a, in next to the mash tun things like that. So that they were definitely very strong childhood memories for me. But I didn't really drink. Uh, whiskey until I went to university and um, and then naturally it was a German that got me into drinking scotch whiskey because he was astonished that I had grown up in Scotland and never and didn't drink scotch whiskey and I was a rum drinker at the time so right. uh, so I so I so I got a terrible lecture from him and he he dragged me along to a to a few uh, a few uh, whiskey club sessions in Edinburgh 
That is fascinating. There's so many people. I never really appreciated how often that happened, but there's so many people that I've spoken to over the last few months throughout these sessions that have told me that they were introduced to whiskey by someone someone from out with Scotland, even though they grew up next to a distillery. And it maybe wasn't the case where you were, where a German took you to tastings and things like that. But um, uh, Roy himself was saying that, you know, it was his Italian um, colleague who asked, why don't you know about whiskey? You know, this, this is something you should know about. Um, I think it's very often easy to overlook what's on your doorstep. Um, and then when you start finding out about people from other cultures and around the world, it's that's when you start to really appreciate what you do have on your front door. So, um, yeah, no, that's it. It's shockingly common how, uh, how often I've heard that story now, but it's always a fascinating one to me. Andy, yeah. what about you? First of all, I, I wish I had a great whiskey origin story like Chris with the, you know, childhood memories and stuff but mine's a bit more simple than that my father was always into whiskey and i always remember he had a you know a, a cabinet with like various it was always single malts you know and uh, i'd never never got into whiskey for the longest time and you know he would try me with the occasional one here and there and uh, as time went on i'd maybe come home from uni and he'd be like right try this one see what you think and you know much to his you know as hard as he tried he couldn't find one that i liked and it, it wasn't, this is a bit of a sad story, but it's got a happy ending, so bear with. It, it wasn't until it was, um, the, my father had passed away several years ago with cancer. And when we were in the hospital, someone had smuggled in a bottle of whiskey. And as time went on, we thought, well, we'll, we'll just share a wee dram, because this might be kind of the last one sort of thing. And I was prepared just to drink the whiskey, whatever it was, you know, that, that wasn't you know part of the discussion. But as I drank it, I actually found myself enjoying it. And I don't know if it was the moment or whatever it was, but there was just that wee spark lit up. And I think my father at that point, he could see that I'd enjoyed it. And we had that little moment where he's kind of gone, I found one you liked, you know? And then so, you know, we, we kept the bottle and it's become, I still have some of that bottle left sort of stashed away. But that was my kind of introduction to whiskey. And from then it just sort of snowballed. I've got this kind of personality that if I maybe watch a TV program or a documentary afterwards, if the guy's written a book about it, I'll probably buy that book because I want to know more, you know, get inside it, yeah. And it wasn't until a couple of years later, I was at, um, it was the Whiskey Stramash in Edinburgh with my brother, and he was good friends with a couple of guys who used to write for Edinburgh Whiskey Blog back in the day. Right. And so I got introduced to them. They said, well, you should start a blog. If you're into whiskey, start a blog. We've had a great time doing it. And like many ideas you have when you're drunk, it seems like a good idea at the time. And then fast forward seven years, and here we are. So so let's continue on that then, because my next question was, how did your introduction to whiskey eventually lead to whiskey writing? So continue on with that, Andy. So it was when I was thinking, you know, I had this idea, but I had no idea how to actually do it. So I'd had a look at other whiskey blogs, and I'd always like things like the whiskey sponge. Not so much from the sense of humour, which is great, but it was more for the anonymity. You know, you could write what you wanted. The internet's anonymous, you know? So I kind of went with this thing of, well, it could just be what I think, and I don't need to tell anybody who I am. And it's not, I'm just kind of writing because I want to have this record, not because I really want people to read it, you know? And so I just sort of stumbled from there with a kind of, you know, the, the, the amateur drama pen name. You know, because also, if I'm just writing about whiskey and I don't know about it, 
I, I need to kind of keep that kind of amateur status, if you know what I mean. There's no point me having a whiskey blog, knowing little about whiskey at the time, and, you know, sort of pontificating about Port Ellens and all these sort of old closed distilleries, because it just didn't, it just didn't seem right. So it was more about my whiskey journey, and it always has been that. And to be fair, over the last six or seven years, the whiskey journey's taken me to where I am now, and I, I love what I do in whiskey. I mean, I wouldn't say I really work in the industry, but in this kind of bubble next to the industry, I work congregant to it almost. Yeah. You know? Industry ad- adjacent. Yes. That's yeah. it. Industry adjacent, definitely. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I, no, that's that's fascinating because I think um, it, it kind of rings true to like the the Scotch test dummies as well. When they started out on YouTube, it was a couple of guys that knew very little about Scotch whiskey except from the fact that they liked it and wanted to record their tasting notes. Um, so uh, you now get to this point where you've got a cabinet like that behind you with some incredible whiskeys in it, and even better, a can of tenants there. Um, <laughs> I mean, obligatory big juicy It was so, it was what I was setting up earlier, and I was playing around with the lights and trying to get the angles right and so on. And I thought I just need something in the background that keeps me in that kind of little kind of irrelevant and irreverent way that I like to be. And I thought I need to hide something in yeah. the lineup, you know. So I thought, you know what? I like it. Juicy tea right there. Right below a distiller's edition Lagavulin as well, which is perfect positioning, you know. Good pairing. I'd, I'd have that pairing. Yeah, I think that would be very, very good. Uh, Christopher, how about you? How did your love of whiskey become? I mean, it's it's your full time job, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has been for seven years now, and um, like sort of many, I've heard this from many people in the industry where you, you sort of say, oh, you know, how long have you worked in the industry? And they go, oh, I don't know, 30 years or 40 years. And you say, how did the, how did you get into it? And they say, oh, it was by accident, really. And that's exactly what, that's exactly what happened to me. I, um, I graduated and uh, had, had, but wasn't quite sure what, you know, where I was going to go, or what I was going to do. And I'd, I'd studied international politics and, and Spanish. And I thought, you know, that, and that was very much the route I was, I was originally going down. And, um, and then just by, uh, by chance, um, I applied for a job at the Scotch Whiskey Experience. And on the basis of the fact that I'd by this point been to a number of tastings and enjoyed them and had started buying a few bottles to enjoy at home. And um, I was only there for a few months because during that time I started quite literally googling jobs whiskey <laughs> and uh, and by pure fluke there happened to be a job based in Scotland uh, with whiskey magazine but this was at a this was a very very low level in the company and and I've spent the, the last seven years learning about whiskey living it every day and slowly but surely working my way up and and learning something every day as well because uh, that's what I regularly tell people you know if, if you know the more you know about whiskey the less you know about whiskey and uh, and as soon as you accept that, uh, you'll you'll know that there's no such thing as an expert, apart from maybe the guys that have been doing it for forty odd years at a distillery every single day. Yeah, but then even then, I I, I think that if they were to take a tour at a distillery along the road, they would have questions to ask, right? You know, kind of goes back to what Andy was saying about becoming obsessive about a subject that. Um, and I, I've said it myself, I, I consider myself firmly to be a whiskey geek. I would say my job is to know more about tomato and distillery than anyone that I speak to. Mm-hmm. But when it, when it goes to any other distillery, I'm just a fan who's excited to go and learn a little bit more. So like you say, the more you know, the less you know. Um, 
just seen a question pop up from Sean Murphy there, and it's an interesting one. And it's um, how do you, as part of a brand, approach an unfavorable review by a whiskey writer or one of your of one of your whiskies? And we can talk about reviews as well because that's uh, mm -hmm. part of what both of you do. But I think my response to that, Sean, has changed over time. I think when I first started working in the industry um, and was a little bit, probably a bit more naive, I think I was very quick to you know, say, well, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about, you know, that's rubbish. But then over time you start to learn that you can't win them all. Um, whiskey is the beautiful spirit that it is because we don't all like the same one. Um, and if we did, there would be one bottle behind all of us. It would be the same bottle. And if statistics are anything to go by, it would probably be Johnny Walker Red Label, right? Um, whiskey is so beautiful because everyone has an opinion on it and it's something different. Um, interestingly, now that I'm getting involved in actually whiskey making and involved with blending and things, I look at negative reviews probably almost more... I, I look for them more than I do for positive ones because... We're only going to release a whiskey that we believe is of a good quality and a high standard. It goes through a tasting panel. It goes through many lips before it gets into a bottle and onto a shelf. So we're confident that it's a good quality liquid. So when I do see a negative review, it's kind of good to see that and see, you know, what can we learn from that? Where can we pick up from? Where can we go? Um, or is it just somebody who wants to have a wider gripe about the industry and focuses on a certain product that does that. And I think there's a little bit of that going on as well. But yeah, nowadays, I think I've gone to the, um, you know, everyone has the right to their own opinion. I might not agree with it, but I also don't like certain whiskies. Um, so what, what's your take on that, guys? When it comes to negative reviews as well as positive reviews, um, they ha there has to be both, right? Because positive reviews don't mean anything without negative mm -hmm. ones. Yeah, and I think there's there's a difference between slating something because you don't like it and giving constructive feedback on something that isn't, you know, you, you're not not, you know, whiskey is on a you know, there is a scale of quality um, that you have to appreciate because there are a scale of price points. Um, in terms of the specific, specifically regarding how opinion factors into it, at Whiskey Magazine we always have two tasters. And we deliberately seek people out who have slightly different palettes from one another, um, which does reflect in the scores that we deliver. So we hope that readers who are picking up our magazine eight times a year or checking reviews online on the website can, over time, by getting to know our contributors, start to maybe a little get a little bit of an idea about the kinds of things that, uh, that, that, that our reviewers prefer. But generally, because we don't do everything blind, they're only given region, style, and ABV um, and in, in, a, in a blank sample bottle. We try to give them as little information as possible, including price. And I know that's a, con that's a contentious one because some people say, oh, well, you need, you need the price to contextualize the whiskey that you're drinking. But for us, it's like, well, no, because you, you, you apply the price information afterwards because if a whiskey has been rated as a 7.5, but it's 30 pounds a bottle, well, that's a solid dram for 30 pounds a bottle. But if it's been given a 7.5 and it's 10,000 pounds a bottle, then yeah. you might want to start asking some questions. Um, in terms of actually negative ones, that's not something that we come across too often. Um, you know, we obviously, occasionally you'll get a dud sample sent in. And we have processes in place there to make sure that we can refer back to liquid kept in archive. So if we review something and it gets a 
you know, a, a score that indicates maybe a fault with the liquid, we can reissue samples back to the original tasters from the original sample um, right. to, to find out, to try and get rid of any errors there. Um, if it does, if we do that again, and we find that it's still coming out at, at, at what we'd call a fault score, um, usually we'd then go back to the producer and say, is this the liquid? Is it, you know, is this really the liquid, or has has a dud sample come to us? And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, and um, and you know that's what makes that's what makes life interesting. But I think if we've learned anything over, um, and certainly this is knowledge uh, inherited rather than all through my own experience. But we've been going for twenty one years now, and we find that the industry is actually very well you know receives negative feedback or constructive feedback very very well um, because quite often that is just as useful to them um, or it seems to be just as useful to the industry as a positive one you know if if a particular parcel of stock has been rushed through to sale and maybe because one half of the company wants it to go out there and maybe the other half of the company didn't want it to go out there but you know maybe one one side won that's useful food feedback for them and hopefully also useful feedback for consumers um, when it comes to making their decision about whether it's worth parting with money for that particular product. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's great because I think, well, first of all, if I was ever to receive an email saying, is this really the sample? I think that would be crushing. You know, if that came in, that's worse than any negative re review you could get because, you know, maybe it's not the sample, but if it was, that's that's bad. But but equally, sometimes you know, so we we do get things in sometimes, and there's the seal's not been right on the bottle, and perhaps it's oxidized, or there, if there's been a lot of headspace in the bottle, and if it's come from a from the other side of the world, and there's been a lot of temperature fluctuations, you know, so things can happen happen to samples yeah. in transit, as we all know. I mean, sometimes, gosh, there's been times that I've opened a bottle, poured a dram, left it on the side, wandered off to do something, come back, and something's gone, you know, something's gone a bit wrong with it, but the rest of the bottle's been fine, you know, strange mysterious things happened with whiskey occasionally and uh, and we have to be able to account for that before uh, damning anyone in the press. Well I think another great thing about the whiskey industry and we, we always talk about this is the people at all levels you know and luckily I work for a company that very rarely gets bad reviews which is a fantastic thing to have and it gives you confidence as a brand ambassador to go and talk about your product um, but even when you get to the position where someone reviewing the product doesn't enjoy it Nine times out of 10, the review reflects that and says, you know, this was not for me, but if you like X, Y, and Z, you might enjoy this. You know, I think um, I think all people that are reviewing realize that they do have a, an influence on buying habits. And along with that goes a responsibility to kind of state the, the, the fact that, you know, just because I don't like it doesn't mean that you won't like it. Um, and other things like that. Andy, what's your take on that? You do a big part of what you do at Amateur Drama is tasting notes and reviews. So, Yeah, I think that's the thing. Um, back in the day, the, the Times food critic A.A. Gill, he once said that it's not that I enjoy writing bad reviews, it's just that everybody enjoys reading them. So I think there comes this thing where people like to give bad reviews to get that kind of momentum. But there's also, on the other side of it, there's as many people love to give good reviews of everything. Yeah. And I think it's about striking that balance. You don't want to be in the, this is terrible, to this is brilliant camp. You want to just, you know, as you disassoci disassociate yourself from what your opinion means to the quality of the whiskey. So, again, I'd be humbled if someone bought the bottle because of my, my recommendation. Mm -hmm. I would always say, try it first. 
And I think if you look at a lot of, I mean, I don't know, you don't see a lot of bad reviews, but I think what people don't like, if there's a concept they don't like, like when NES first started coming out, no age statements and so on, the first NES whiskey they reviewed, they just, it would be a concept bashing rather than a liquid bashing. Yep. Once it's been around for a while, it's slightly different. Mm-hmm. If you see where I'm going with that. Yeah. That's totally. very common as well. I've seen quite a few um, reviews online where rather than actually assessing the whiskey on the merits of the liquid in the bottle, it turns into a, a, a lecture about that this is overpriced. And while I appreciate that some of us are very privileged to be able to drink these whiskies as part of our job every day and people have you know wildly different salaries or you know within the UK and around the world, not every whiskey is, you know, the reason there are whiskies at different price points is because there are people that have different spending power and people that want to invest different amounts of their income in whiskey. And just because you have chosen that you have arbitrarily decided, you know, unilaterally that this particular whiskey isn't worth £65 or £85, well, that doesn't really have any bearing on necessarily on the actual quality of the liquid you know it's a it's a useful comment to have afterwards but if it ends up being the whole substance of the review it one suspects that it's more as as andy says a little bit about um clickbait moaning <laughs> which we all know is a thing yeah, yeah there's, there's definitely been a trend of that that i've seen recently and it's exactly what andy was saying you know you get a little bit of traction from a negative um or or uh, i mean I, you guys as commentators on the industry have uh, again, a responsibility to hold the industry to account, hold the industry to standards in the same way that wider journalists have that um, role when it comes to politics or um, various other things, you know, that you have that role to play. I think the problem becomes when those um, numbers start tickling up on that single post, it becomes very, very attractive to do that again. And Andy, I know yourself, you've put a, a, a while back, you put a... Um, a message out about um, the language that was used in press releases. And it was really nice to see that because it, I think a lot of us feel the same way. What was also very nice to see was that the next um, post that he put out was not another uh, shouting match at the industry. You know, you, you had an issue, you, you voiced that issue, but then you moved on and you didn't go back to um, just seeking that traction all the time. Yeah, and it's still kind of about the liquid. Because I wouldn't, if I got a, a poorly constructed press release full of word soup, I wouldn't then give a negative review to the whiskey because I didn't like the press release. So it's important to kind of think about the things as two separate entities, you know? And, and that was kind of my point there. But to go back to what Chris touched on earlier, I think when you talk about the cost of a whiskey, cost and value are two entirely different concepts. Mm-hmm. So exactly. there was a, a 500 pound bottle of whiskey that I thought that I, I didn't like, but someone bought it and it gave them an immense amount of pleasure to drink it, then that gives them value. The cost is inconsequential in that kind of framework, if you see where I'm going with that. Yeah, and, that, and that's what becomes difficult because as you were saying, Chris, you know, uh, a 7.5 on a 30 pound whiskey for someone is going to be, oh, that's a solid dram. But if the, if it's somebody who's currently buying the the, the bottles that are on offer in your Tesco's Morrison's at 22, 25 pound all the time. And then they see that that 30 pound bottle that they were looking at has only got a 7.5, you know, that's when the cost and value does become, you know, it's, there's no set guide on that. So I think that's where a, um, 
assessing the liquid for the quality of the liquid in and of itself first is very important to do. Exactly. Now, moving on from that, um, we're all in the industry and we get some pretty incredible experiences, but writers and journalists in the whiskey industry get invited to some pretty cool events or um, things to do with various companies. What's your highlights been? What have, what have, what's your favourite, uh, I guess you could call them press trips, been to date? I'll let you fire on, Andy. Okay, look, I went to a tasting. Um, it was last year at the Highland Whiskey Festival, and it was a, a Brora Vertical. And it was five expressions of Brora from concurrent years, but it was situated in the Brora filling store. Oh, wow. And it was just the coolest thing. You know, you're, you're sitting there drinking whiskey that's been matured in casks that were filled several right. years. Yeah. You know? Um, second to that comes several cigar smoking moments and sharing, sharing some serious sherries with Chris. Press <laughs> trips we've been on as well. But the, the broader just tips it, I think. Just yeah, I think that's fair. That's an interesting thing as well. When I was doing my little uh, bit of research behind this, amazing how many people that are involved in whiskey love sherry. I think all three mm. of us are big sherry fans tonight, and we'll we'll talk about it till we're blue in the face that how much whiskey drinkers should go and try a glass of sherry. But um, yeah, Chris, what about you? What's what's been some of your moments? Um. I mean, the, the very first press trip I, uh, I ever went on um, was uh, to Glengarry Distillery in, in Aberdeenshire. And that was when um, Rachel Barry was, was still master blender there. And, and that, that definitely sticks in my mind just because it was, the, it was that first experience of going on a, on a press trip as a, as a, as a, a, new, a newly minted whiskey journalist. Um, so that, that'll always uh, you know, have a very special place in my heart. Um, I think in terms of the one that probably most influenced the, the, the you know the rest of my career um, would be the first time that I uh, I was invited on a press trip to experience a preview of the Spirit of Speyside Whiskey Festival, and that that always stayed with me because it was obviously it was beyond a brand experience. You know, this wasn't it wasn't a trip to just go and visit one distillery and learn about one set of people. It was very much learning about a whole part of Scotland, its history. It, the community that lives there, you know, visiting the Highlander Inn, you know, go, going um, with the Glenlivet Hill trek up on the Arga Cats up the hill, uh, you know, you know, going down to Craig Ellicky Bridge and having a dram by the Spey, you know, these kinds of experiences that once you've lived them, they stay with you forever. And that's obviously why that particular festival continues to bring back people every year, including all the very disappointed people that were unable to go this year, unfortunately. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of that this year, sadly, but um, yeah, not not cancelled, just postponed. I think is the best way to look at all of these exactly. things. These distilleries, many of them have been around for 150, 200 years. Um, they're still going to be there. I think what we're finding difficult at the moment is um, trying to get a 123 year old building to conform to social distancing um, when it comes to tours. But we're getting yeah. there. There'll be more on that to look out for in the next couple of days and weeks, folks, in terms of when we're reopening. But I know the industry as a whole is trying to get back to a sense of normality. Um, now, I'm going to go on because, Chris, I was speaking to Becky Paskin a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. more generally about uh, our whiskey and what they're doing there. But I talked to Becky a little bit about her background as a whiskey journalist. And she mm -hmm. 
the impression that I got from her was that she was a little bit concerned as to the, the way that whiskey journalism was going and the current state of things. And actually, uh, Graham Fraser's asked um, a, a question that kind of ties into that. And that was, do you think that digital whiskey reviews and information will kill off written publications? And you very much work with written physical publications. Mm-hmm. What is your current, what's your take on the current state of whiskey journalism the, and the written digital thing? Mm-hmm. So, so the written digital things are fantastic. Uh, it's a fantastic topic, and um, and and I'm very pleased to say that uh, you know print is dead. Long live print. <laughs> um, the 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 industry is going through a period of massive change. So, publications that were tra- that have that, that that produced content that was easily shifted over to a digital platform. So, I'm talking particularly quite general lifestyle content. Um, quite often stuff that was uh, more pictures, less words, um, particularly stuff that uh, that was quite short form. So I'm talking maybe max seven, six, seven hundred words, um, an article, maybe up to a, maybe, maybe just about up to a thousand. That kind of content, which quite a lot of printed magazines were, they're seeing their circulation figures fall through the floor because that kind of content has moved over to websites, to social media. Instagram is your, you know, if you want to look at beautiful pictures, you go on Instagram. If you want to read short articles, you know, there's there's plenty of websites for that. And certainly, but at the same time, we've also seen niche independent magazines about very particular topics. Their circulations are actually increasing at the moment. So if you look at figures published by uh, the PPA, you'll see that actually there's something of a renaissance in print going on right now. And, uh, and we're very lucky to be caught up in that. So for me, the value of printed media is uh, is intrinsically linked to, to a couple of things. One, people like something physical. You know, we stare at screens all day, you know, no more so than during lockdown when we're all on a, on a million Zoom calls a day on top of the normal staring at a screen that we do. And um, so I think there's definitely value in, uh, in in stepping back from that and having something on your hands and, and, and sort of de-digitizing for a bit. And we're certainly, and we certainly see that in, uh, in sales figures across the whole of the uh, independent print industry. Particularly on, t- on terms of the type of content though, there's quite a lot of research that's been done into the kinds of content that people engage with online and generally the attention span of your reader on a mobile device or or on a uh, or on a laptop or a desktop tends to trail off once you start approaching really once you get past a thousand words you might keep them to 1500 and then they really people really get bored of scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and and that tends to be why things like long reads are hidden away in in lower down sections or specific sections of websites because they're much harder for people to consume and and that's certainly where printed media comes in uh, into its own because if you're going to really dissect a topic over two or three or four or five thousand words that's where printed media comes in. People can pick it up, they can put it down, they can go back, they can reread things, they can sit, they can take it at their own pace and, and enjoy it in the same way that they would a book. Um, and certainly that that's luckily seems to be backed up by uh, by behaviour of readers. So, uh, Do you think, so, has, has there been any element of, of social media, of digital media, kind of conditioning people... Um, towards reading smaller articles you know has there been an element of in which you know people just genuine generally don't read long articles like they once did or is there like you're saying a real crying out for something physical where you can sit down you can switch off the screen and spend a bit of time with it 
I think it, it, you know you need to know your audience, obviously. So, and and we uh, we aim to provide something you know across across our website and then across the, the magazine. We tried to uh, we aim to provide a bit a little bit of you know a bit of both. Um, you know, if somebody's only if somebody's a light, you know, coming in, dipping in for a light read, you know, they're never going to jump into your three thousand word piece on you know why particular types of wine casks you know shouldn't be used or something like that. But but you have particularly enough with a topic like whiskey, you have people who already have that level of knowledge. You know, if somebody's if somebody's been drinking whiskey for for a long enough time, or you know, or, or been it or has been um, engaging with it. Uh, deeply enough that they've got that level of knowledge that makes that sort of couple of hundred word article kind of irrelevant because they're just reading what they already know that's when people seek out long form well-researched long-form content and uh, and that's certainly what we we aim to provide uh, at whiskey magazine yeah i think your your recent article about the history of dalmore is a great example of that you know the, that was a fascinating article about a distillery that is just along the road from me. And it was a five minute walk. I actually worked at the company for a year and I learned more about the history of that distillery reading that one article because I wasn't having to piece together various posts from across the Internet. You know, I could sit down and actually digest the whole history of it. So that was a great example of that. So thank um, you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for writing it. And um, really, really well researched. I think you were, you were telling me as well that there was a couple of bits of pieces in there that the brand themselves maybe necessarily didn't know before. So and, that, and, and that's 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 the hallmark of when you know that you have a well researched piece. You know, if you have the brand coming back and saying, where did you find this? You know, can you show us your source? That's it. Yeah. It's kind of the opposite of the tasting one. It's a good thing. It means you can go, well, actually, we found it in X archive or, you know, you can find it here, you know, if you if you, if you refer to to wherever and um, you know that's what we that's what we aim to do and and that's the kind of research that that's where for me that's where paid journalism comes in you know that's why that content is worth paying for that's why these journalists that are working for these kinds of titles that is their day job you know their day job is to know is to have the time to be able to dedicate into having every whiskey book on their shelf going to archives and um, finding out that information that you can't just get from a cursory uh, google search yeah and uh, just to follow up on that, Justine Hazelhurst has asked um, if the digital version of Whiskey Magazine differs to the printed version. Um, she's only ever subscribed to, subscribed to the printed version. So no, so we have um, we, there's this sort of three ways that you can that you can read us. So we have that with the printed version, we have the what we call our digital edition, which is run through an app. So that's iOS and Android app, but that is just a straight lift of um, of PDFs from from the, the, that would be would have been sent to the printer to produce the magazine. So there's no in terms of the actual content itself. Uh, there's no there's no there's no change. Occasionally we'll um, we'll include like digital only um digital only uh, supplementary information so for instance if there's been a distillery focus about tomatin we might um if we might compile every tasting we've ever done on that brand and include it at the end because obviously you can add as many pages as you like to a digital publication so we'll sometimes add in supplementary information videos if we have them um but but the actual features themselves written features they don't change yeah and so that's an interesting thing as well because you know you're, you're paying journalists, researching journalists um, to, to research for articles for a magazine, but obviously there is a lot of people still digesting that form of media on an iPad rather than mm -hmm. getting exactly. the magazine the door. So it makes sense still to have it on a digital form um, if, if possible. I personally love holding a magazine. 
Um, like you say, switching off a backlight is nice for a while. So, um, holding the magazine is great. So, and Andy, I think there's been as much change in the blogging world as there has in the kind of the writing world as well. You know, we talked very briefly before we came on. When I started working in whiskey back in 2012, it seemed like blogging was the probably the main outlet for impassioned enthusiasts to communicate what they were drinking and how they felt felt about it. But now we live in a world where we've got YouTube. You know, you've got a lot of great personalities on YouTube doing a lot of great stuff that would have otherwise probably have gone into blogs um, a few years back. Um, you've also got Instagram. You know, I talked to the guys from Barrel to Balco a couple of weeks ago, and they're communicating their love of whiskey through photography. Um, how do you feel the whole, you know, the blogging world has changed even over the last 10 years? I think the passion's always the same, and the spark to start something is the same. It's how you go about it that's maybe different. You know, so back when I first started, it was all about, you know, a website and just writing notes, mostly for myself, that I just put out there. But now there's so many more available options. So you might have that passion, but just do some nice photographs on Instagram. And you're still fulfilling that same need, driving that same passion. You're just doing it in a different way. So the the why is still there, but the how is different, if you, if you see where I'm going with that. It's like there's, there's many different vehicles you can do it with now. You know, yeah. I think when I started kind of blogging, then there wasn't really many whiskey YouTube channels and there wasn't much on Instagram, you know. But now yeah. it's, there's more tools in the toolbox, I think, is maybe the best way to put it. If you started today and you wanted to communicate your love of whiskey, is blogging the way you would go? Is that still what you would do? I think, yes. I, I think it would be because that's just my kind of style. I like to just sort of ramble away and i don't think that would come across visually i think i just like to sit and write and it's like that thing where i don't know if you've seen the internet meme and it's a picture of morgan freeman and at the bottom it just says you are reading this in morgan freeman's voice yeah <laughs> i've always had this want that when someone's reading what i write they're hearing me talking about the whiskey almost to them in my voice using my language, using my words, and that's how I want to come across. Yeah. I don't know if it does that, but that's how I've always pictured it in my head anyway, you know? Yeah, well, certainly with, with what you do, it's, it is all about, like you say, it's the passion, and that come across mm-hmm. comes across in leaps and bounds, but also people living locally will know that you've got the Amateur Drama Whiskey Club. You do tastings regularly, slightly less so this year because of um, various reasons. But- less so, yeah. Yeah, but I've even got a bottle behind me for an upcoming tasting that you were planning earlier in the year. So it's still probably the only closed bottle on that shelf behind me, but we'll be getting that. I think what I'm trying to get at there is that even though it's based around the blog, that's led you to be able to communicate about whiskey in so many different ways. So you contribute to local press, you know, you're also doing the club. So the blog's the core, but it's grown and to become so much more because of that. And because of the quality on there? I think it's just grown arms and legs. And it got to the point where I was confident with my writing. So I thought, well, maybe I should see if I'm confident with my talking about whiskey. You know, because it's easy to write anything you want on the internet and it's fine. But then I thought, you know what, maybe I should just start doing tastings. Because I thought, you know what, I've been to a few now. Maybe I could do that. 
And I kind of hummed and hawed about it for a while and thought, you know, maybe it's not my thing. Maybe I shouldn't. So on a whim, I bought 120 tasting glasses. And they arrived in two days. And I thought, right, now I've bought this in this huge big box in the spare room. I am going to have to do something about it. And that yep. was the step it took just to, sometimes you just have to decide to do it and then figure out the hows and whys later on, you know? Yeah, particularly who's washing the dishes, I bet, is the, the tough one. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, there was for a while I was washing them all individually by hand afterwards. I have a nice new venue with a dishwasher, so it's yeah. fine. So you can tell a passionate man by his dishpan hands. <laughs> so both of you have come to whiskey in a different way. You've both taken slightly different um, steps around the, the writing side, but that's led you both to be involved in the World Whiskey Awards. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Christopher, you're maybe best to talk about that because you're a category chair. Is that the right term? Yes, yeah, so I, so I chair the, the Scotch Whiskey um, category judging panel for the World Whiskies Awards. And um, the World Whiskies Awards, for, for, for those that don't know, is a, is a, an offshoot of Whiskey Magazine. So... Um, as is as is whiskey live the the the, the global um, whiskey festival brand so we, but they all come they all came originally from the core that is that is whiskey magazine and um and the world whiskey's awards emerged very much because of this need to 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 have more comparison across the whole global spectrum of whiskey um you know reviews in the magazine uh you know eight times a year that that's fantastic and you can compare within that one issue but giving a global context on it but a, a sort of snapshot once a year was seen as being very important. Um, so we st we're still carrying on with that, uh, you know, so, so we have awards in other categories too. We have, uh, we do them in beer, uh, gin, vodka, various other categories, and, and they're all still going ahead, although remotely, usually we'd like to do them, like to do them in person. But um, we announced them each year in March. This year it was done, uh, done digitally. And I think What's really special for me about that particular award uh, awards uh, program is that the number of different countries that are entering product is absolutely incredible, and it's growing every year. You know, when you you know, speaking to my colleagues, when it started, you know, it really was Scotland, Ireland, America, Japan. That was about it, you know. And and now, even in the even in the seven years that I've been with the business, you know, the number of different countries on that list is just shooting through the roof. And um, and the entries that we're seeing into particular style categories as well, because we we both break everything down by country, but also by style. And uh, you know, you're seeing categories like wheat whiskey, uh, which isn't something that you know a few years ago you there would have been, you know globally there probably wouldn't have been enough to really enter necessarily just straight whiskey wheat whiskey into that and that category you know is, is really growing rye um from countries outside you know outside of uh, the united states that's another category that we're seeing that's growing that's fantastic and uh, i certainly enjoy pouring over those spreadsheets every year <laughs> which sounds a bit nerdy but it's it's interesting so andy you you get the call from World Whiskey Awards asking you to be a judge. What is the process of being a judge? What what does uh how long does the competition last? What what do you do on the day? Um, you know, it, from from what Chris was saying there about the all the categories, it sounds like a terrible job. So, um, please tell us about how difficult your job as a judge is. Okay, well, the first thing you do when you get a call to judge something like this is have a big attack of imposter syndrome, and you start thinking to yourself. Am I qualified to judge such a competition? Then you think, well, I've been invited, so I'm going to turn up, you know. And it it's very much runs like I, I thought it would do. You know, there's a, a nice venue, and you're judging various categories. And you know the category. 
but everything's done blind, you know? I think that's really important to do things blindly, but also you kind of need to always make sure you're comparing apples with apples and oranges with oranges. So you need to have enough categories to make everything a fair comparison, but you don't want to start having ludicrous categories out there as well, you know? So it is very much, it sounds, oh, it must be a terrible job to go and try all those whiskies. But when you're on the spot and you have to maybe try 50 whiskies in a day and you have to come up with tasting notes on the spot and you've got time limited, yeah, in a way it is quite daunting, you know? And there are people there who make it look easy and maybe it is easy for them. But for me, when you're judging maybe 12 different entries in one reasonably narrow, and again, it's like scoring is not something I do. So I have to right. kind of get better in the scoring system as well, you know? So it was a real interesting experience and a kind of evolution in the way I sort of taste and perceive whiskey as well. So it was great to be a part of. And I think as well, it's really sort of helped me narrow down sort of certain flavor profiles and what I'm looking for. Because I've had to try and not make it personal. Mm-hmm. I've had to, I can't judge it on, oh, I like that. I don't like that. It has to be sort of slightly broader than that. You know, I can't mark down every PD whiskey if I didn't like PD whiskeys. Or mark yep. down all virgin oak if I didn't like virgin oak. Or if I had a problem with NAS whiskies, mark them all down. You have to make it quite sort of constructive and fit into another framework, which makes you think outside the box, which has been a great thing for me to develop the way I taste and approach whiskey. Yeah. And have you been able to get hints and tips from the other judges that are on the panel with you? I will admit to spending quite a bit of time trying to earwig Charlie McLean, who's on the next table. Right. <laughs> Um, but I think in the end, you just have to be you, go with your gut and listen to what your own mind's telling you. I think the first question you always have to, you try a whiskey and go, right, do I like it? And if you like it, then you can take it from there, you know? So I, I never score whiskies when I review them. So I've had to take a framework and then kind of make it fit my own sort of analytical process. So mm-hmm. I always start everything at five. You know, if we're talking about out of 10, start at five. And if I like the balance, it'll add a point. If I don't like the balance, I'll take off a point. And just add in all these little factors to try and find a score. So that was the, that was the big challenge for me, was trying to put a numerical value on a whiskey and what, what made one 0.25 better than another. Right. Exactly. And, and the, the idea is that by having judges work in small teams as well, rather than having everybody tasting everything, uh, which leads to inevitable palate fatigue. And, you know, I, that, that's one particular topic regarding awards that I'm very passionate about. You know, I think that if you if you're going to ask people to taste, you know, 60, 70, 80 whiskies in a session, you know, that's 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 nuts, because I think it's I think there's enough evidence to show that even when you have enough judges that you can start um accounting for biases uh you know or preferences um you know if you have if you push people to the point where everybody's getting palate fatigue you start getting scores for things that have big bold punchy flavor profiles particularly stuff that's usually over you know 48 percent abv or over these are the ones that suddenly start getting marked up and that's why you know we'd rather have more judges working in teams that are large enough, small enough that you, you're you not giving everybody everything, but but large enough that they can account for each other's biases um, and give them less to taste on a day. Uh, and, and hopefully you can start, I mean, obviously you can't control all of these variables, but you try to control them as much as possible so that the data that comes out of that is uh, is as empirical as, as something that's based on personal preference can be. 
So how 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 does the the final number for a particular dram get landed on? Is it the average of that group? Um, is that is Correct. that very yeah. that's what you do? It? Yeah. Yeah. So so it's so it's calculated using all of the scores from a group, and uh, and because because tasting is done in different stages, but you know, but kind of it's kind of like the Olympics. You know, you you get judged in your style in your country first, and then then you get judged in your style. Uh, against everything from the rest of the world so we take you we take you up and through and in fact there's actually another layer to it as well because we judge you in your style in your country in your age bracket maturation time bracket as well so non-age statements um non-aged single malts from france are all judged against each other first and that means that you do end up with quite niche categories at first but then that builds up so by the time you get world's best single malt you know that that has worked its way through various categories and it's not just a score that we've plucked out of the air from one judging panel yeah now you, you touched on it very briefly there the giving awards to something that is deeply personal and i spoke about this ahead of time it's a question that i have because we're very lucky at tomato to get a great number of awards and we talked we touched on it as well you know from various different bodies which is another thing that we maybe need to talk about but one thing i always go back to is that awards are great they show a great um they show an overall character that is there in that product but ultimately it will come down to whether you like it or not. And I'll never forget the time where um, a customer at a show in the Netherlands came up to my table with a certain book in his hand. We'll not name names. Um, but he opened the book and he saw the score of one of the whiskies on the table and said, I want to try that one. And I gave him the dram and he said, this is meant to be a very nice whiskey. I don't enjoy it. And it's like exactly throw that book in the bin right now. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah. like I say, I'm not naming names at all. But what's your view on that? Uh, again, whiskey is such a personal preference thing. We were talking about it a little bit earlier on. Where is the value of awards? I personally see a great deal of value in awards, and I think we shared the, the a similar understanding of where that comes from. But as someone that's so deeply involved in them, give us your take on that. Um, I, I was saying to you earlier, the example I always give to people whenever I'm asked about awards is that, well, not all awards are born equal, as I've just, you know, talked about, you know, the, the paper trail that I personally believe a rigorous award needs to have to, to reach its conclusions. And that, that, that's one set of criteria that I would say is, is, is very relevant. The, the, uh, the spread of, um, of, of your judging panel as well you know you want people from different parts of the industry outside of the industry and um, different ideally def i think personally i think you need people with different levels of experience as well and different tastes in there you want a global panel as well because um palettes vary globally so these these things are obviously behind the scenes that that contribute to contribute to what makes a credible award but in terms of their actual value um i would say to people well I know nothing or very little about wine. And when I'm standing in a supermarket aisle looking at two bottles of wine and I've, I maybe know which grape I want or I maybe have an idea of what part of the world I want my bottle of wine to come from. And um, 
if they're both at the same kind of price, the reality is is that I'd probably end up buying the one that's got the the shiny metal on it. <laughs> and uh, and I think there's a, and there's a lot of consumer data out there that backs up that conclusion. You know, they do have whether we like to admit it or not, uh, awards when displayed on packaging and when used in marketing, they have a they do have an influence on on buying habits. And and that for me means that there is that moral obligation as an organization that runs awards to make sure that if somebody has a problem with your conclusions, that you can go fine, here's the data, you know, come and have a, come and have a look, you know, um, and, and obviously you, you can't do that for every person in the world that moans, but particularly if somebody came with a, a, a credible uh, complaint, at least you can, at least you've got that, um, that data to fall, to fall back on. And ultimately, I think in terms of the, that value as well, it's, I was very careful to stress that I am a, an amateur when it comes to wine. I, I enjoy wine, but I don't really know anything about it. And that's why they are useful to me. You know, I see a lot of, um, of posts going up online every year around awards season where people who I know know a great deal about whiskey are saying, I can't believe this whiskey won this award or, or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but it's, it's not meant to help you. You know, you could, you could walk into a bar with 800 whiskeys, name every one and probably categorize them by what year they were released in. You know, that you're not the audience for this kind of media. You know, you don't need help. But the vast majority of people out of our lovely little whiskey bubble of people that, you know, for this, for whom this is their life, outside yep. of that whiskey bubble, most people just have a, have their normal life and happen to like whiskey. And whiskey is something that they buy alongside their wine and their fabric softener and their sausages. And, and you know, they, and they don't have you know, or, or want to invest that kind of time in learning about fermentation times and reflux to make that buying decision. So they rely on people who's you know who do dedicate their life to it to to come to the hopefully the right conclusions or at least as right a conclusion as uh, as a human being can ever come to about anything yeah I, I i totally agree with you there um if anyone who is watching this video or uh, listening to the podcast afterwards you are in the one percent of whiskey drinkers in the world and it's a f fascinating percent to be in because we get to see and try so many incredible whiskies. But a lot of these wider things that go on are not necessarily targeted for us. And I think it comes down to what you're saying there is it's confidence that it's money well spent. Um, and I totally agree. Now, another thing that we touched on was the quality of the award um, giver itself. If you're standing in the um, wine aisle in your supermarket and you've got your two bottles of wine in front of you and one of them has a gold medal from one uh, award and one of them has a gold medal from another award, how do you know which one to pick? Personally, I would always look for the most recent one um, because it's probably the closest to when that was bottled. Um, but how do, you, how do you navigate the, the, uh, the award um, presenters, you know? Do you want me to give you that? Do you want to answer that one, Andy? Um, I think, again, it goes back to this kind of who are awards for. And I think if we can just jump back a little bit to what Chris was saying, it was best explained to me when you talk about, you know, the 1%, you talk about the 1, the 9, and the 90. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got the 1% who are sort of single cask, cask strength, whiskey geeks. You've got the 9% who are educated and want to know more. Then you've got the 90% who are like, oh, that one's got a gold medal. Yeah. And, for the 90%, who's given the award really doesn't matter. They're kind of your supermarket buyers who are thinking, right, what's the oldest whiskey I can get for the least money? 
and this one's also got a medal. But when you know a little bit more and your knowledge increases, there are certain awards that you maybe think, right, okay, I will trust this one more. And I tend to judge that on the volume of press releases I get from certain awards. Some of them seem to award very, very many awards, which again, it's just like whistling into the wind. You know, with, with the amount of awards that come out, you have to, again, if, an, if a whiskey was winning consistently several awards, then I'd maybe pay attention. But I think if I'm judging a whiskey's quality and would I like to buy it, I tend to look more, if someone whose palate I trust or another writer has recommended it, whose palate I think, mine's maybe similar to, my tastes are similar to, that's where I look. But gold medals on the bottle, I think when you get to the other end of the kind of like geeky spectrum, I don't think they really matter quite so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and, the, and the reality is, is this is where the burden lies on the brand. And this is obviously, I guess, where it, it comes down to the sort of the, the integrity of people who work at the, uh, you know, work at the, uh, at the brands to enter awards that they know are credible. You know, there are you know, not not specifically speaking about the the whiskey category, but um, or even the drinks category, but uh, the wider awards industry is a thing. There are plenty of companies out there that will approach you, and you'll just get an email in your inbox that says, "Congratulations, you've won." You know, um, you know, you're Christopher. You're the you know the um, I don't know the, the, the today's Instagram whatever person who was born on a Wednesday and you've won an award. Congratulations! If you want your trophy, pay nine hundred ninety-nine pounds. You know these yeah. these these companies exist and they're out there. And we we you know and I suppose this is part of our job as journalists holding the industry itself to account. And that's where our sort of role with engaging with the trade itself comes in. But um, you know we have to hope that brands recognise that it's more damaging to them to have a million awards from these organizations that nobody's really ever heard of, or if you actually scratch a little deeper and you go on their website and you see that you just buy, effectively buy or buy a reward or something, it's up to them to differentiate those from organizations that spend tens of thousands of pounds every year, you know, bringing judges in and having a, you know, very rigorous judging process. And, and, and broadly, I think we're very lucky in this category that, that most brands recognize that, uh, you know, recognize that distinction um so that's that's an interesting point because i would i would agree to an extent i would say most quality brands would be on board with that but i do think there are as in any category you know we talked about you, you mentioned um washing up powder and all that there are other brands which just aren't as good um maybe for various reasons and they still want a gold medal right so maybe then they start they start answering that email that says pick up your medal for this amount of money. So I think there's, there's a bit of both. And I think that's when with a little bit of research, like you say, and you go back to the paper trail and really look into it, that's when us as consumers can get a much better understanding of what's that brand all about, you know, mm -hmm. um, and go from there. But on the surface of it, it's, I don't think it's as clean cut as we would like it to be and say, you know, I mean, I know at Tomat and we sign up to, I think, two or three award ceremonies a year. Um, and and we do them because they are the quality award ceremonies that are well recognized. Um, and it adds value to the brand when you get an award from those from those companies. Um, so we do subscribe to that sort of model. But I like, like I say, I think there is an element of, you know, everyone wants a gold medal at some point. And I, I was doing a tasting the other day and I was saying, you know, if you if you if you look hard enough, you can find an award for any whiskey on the shelf. It is just about finding the ones that are quality and actually mean something. 
and and I think that's where you have, you know, and this is something that we're certainly looking into at the moment is starting to provide, you know, awards, the burdens on awards companies to start providing more and more information about their process on the website. So we have, we detail our process. It's right there. We don't hide anything about how to enter as well. You know, that's all there. So, so a, a consumer, if they are so, you know, if they're so inclined can go, they can see how it works. They can see, you know, how people enter their products. And um, and uh, we, we try to regularly update um, the, the criteria for each category as well so that, you know, you don't want to have a category that's sort of single malt whiskey is, you know, distilled in the morning and aged in, in bourbon barrels for exactly this amount of time. You know, you can't have a million different categories like that. And that's why we try to have very clearly defined ones. And when we think there needs to be additional uh, criteria added to a particular category we add it I'm actually in the middle at the moment as we speak <laughs> um, uh, updating category uh, definitions for the World Whiskies Awards um, and because every year something crops up and you think hmm that should be in there you know you don't want to you don't want any chance of something slipping through the net and ending up in the wrong category or or, or entering when it maybe shouldn't yeah now I've got one final question, but before I get onto that, there was a question that came in from Justine and it tied back to the way the World Whiskey Awards do things. And it was, have you ever had an example of where you look at the scores on a certain product and half of the scores are in low and the other half are incredibly high? And if so, in that situation, do you still go with the with nothing in the middle? And do you still go with the average or do you have to look into that a little bit more and try and find out what's going on there? So I I'm, I I'm, I don't directly work on the so this is something I think it's important to point out I don't directly work on the award side of our business so we have a um, we have a very uh, rigid separation of church and state between awards uh, commercial and editorial in our business so uh, we maybe sometimes don't talk to each other as much as we should do <laughs> but, um, but 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 personally I think I'd rather have it that way than 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 the alternative but certainly what I know from past experience is if there is ever a an uh, a sample that's been scored or for any reason called into question um it's it's reviewed and we the reason we keep archive liquid of everything that's been entered it can be retasted we you know obviously it's not ideal to have to reset a whole panel but if we felt that the uh, that there was some reason that we needed to do that then we'd either do the panel again remotely uh, probably via zoom you know we'd send out the whole the whole flight again and so it's compared amongst its peers once again um, or take or take some other view you know if it was something super serious and it needed to be withdrawn from the competition altogether then you know that's what has to happen what for us what's most important is that the data that we get out of it at the end is correct brilliant now like I say, I've got one final question, and it's for both of you, but Andy, I'll jump to you because it ties into what you were saying about, you know, when award season comes around, you get lots of um, newsletters from the brands saying what they've won. But what I want to ask both of you as writers and journalists, how do you feel about the way whiskey awards are handled by the wider media? Because certainly from what I see, there seems to be they really only seem to be picked up if they showcase something out of the ordinary winning. So if I ever hear Scotch on the Rocks again, whenever a World Whiskey wins an award, I think, uh, I don't know what I'll do, but it won't be pleasant. You know, it seems that if Dave in the pub enjoys a Japanese whiskey, it's Scotch on the Rocks. Um, and then the other example is, you know, and this came, this is close to home for the World Whiskey Awards, um, with Lidl winning best blended Scotch whiskey under 12 years old. And then that got sensationalized to Lidl wins best Scotch whiskey. So, 
Andy, I'll come to you because you touched on getting all these newsletters. What do you feel about you know the way the media handles awards? I think it's it's only really you know it, it goes back to the whole thing you know dog bites man that's not a news story man bites dog however there's something there so going back to maybe um, maybe a, a, say for instance in the past maybe a Japanese whiskey won best whiskey in the world well that's dog bites uh, that's man bites dog sorry that's something entirely different that's a headline that's different that's an outlier you know so I yep. think it tends to be these sort of things that tend to create headlines if it's not quite clickbait I wouldn't say that but it tends to be if there's a big difference in what you'd expect. Whereas if a Scottish brand won best scotch in the world, well, that's not really news because they should win that anyway. You know, it goes back to what you're saying about Lidl's and it's, you know, supermarket blend or supermarket single malt, whatever. It shouldn't have won. So therefore it's a story. Yeah. So not quite a, a misrepresentation, but there's definitely a kind of skew towards if an outlier wins, it's news. Whereas if something you'd expect to win wins, mm. well, where's the story there? I think the little case in particular is actually very interesting because they um, they went through a period where the investment they were making in the liquid that was going into their bottles was was quite incredible. They, um, you know, that the quality was really very very high, and particularly some of the aged blends they released as well were not the kind of thing I would have expected to find uh, on the shelf uh, in in that particular shop, and and yet. Clearly, somebody in the business thought, "Look, if we're going to do this, let's let's do it right." And um, and they went to you know partners in the industry, and they and they found the liquid, you know, the best liquid they could get for the uh, volume they wanted and the money they wanted. And you know, and 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 that's not to say that they they weren't deserving of those uh, of those particular you know those particular accolades. I think how the media handles it, uh, to your point, is an interesting one. The broader media, while it's fun to have a bit of a moan. Part of me is kind of just happy that the mainstream media is talking about whiskey <laughs> in a positive right. way. You know, I'm kind of like, well, to be honest, if this makes anybody buy another bottle of uh, of Scotch or Japanese whiskey or, or wherever the whiskey came from, then you know, that's at the very least, that's maybe even just getting somebody into brown spirits that usually only drinks uh, vodka or gin, uh, or, or usually drink is a wine drinker or a beer drinker. You know, if that, I think the the other thing to bear in mind with that is that. I'd be I'd be hard pressed to be convinced that that kind of media reaction hasn't played a part in the ascendancy of uh, of Japanese whiskey generally in the mind of the public as well. You know, not all that long ago, if you told people, "Oh, I you know I really like Japanese whiskey," people would go, "Really? Oh gosh!" And whereas now, people go, "Oh, I've heard about Japanese whiskey. It's really good, isn't it?" And and that's a good thing because while those particular headlines, you know, about the fact that Scotch is on the rocks because the Japanese whiskey is one world's best whiskey, um, just because that headline was sensationalised and maybe it wasn't, a, you know, the best journalism out there, you know, it's not going to win a Pulitzer Prize or something, it nevertheless does have an influence. You know, it 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 is introducing people to this idea. It's starting to break down mental barriers, and whether that's a good thing for the Scotch industry or not, obviously, who knows? But um, it, it's certainly, hopefully, making more people drink whiskey, which uh, I think is something we can all agree is a good thing. Yeah, that's that's absolutely a great thing, and it's a, a, a perspective that I hadn't considered myself. So thank you for answering that, because when I was particularly on the little one, I read the article that Becky wrote at the time, which actually raised a fascinating point that by it being picked up by the media wrong as Rod's Best Whiskey is Lidl's, 
it actually downplays how very amazing it is that that little bottle won best 12 year old and under you know that's an incredible thing in and of itself but to then inflate it and then realize what's actually going on maybe uh downplays how great an award that was but you touched on a point that's something that i hold absolutely true you know i was asked um a while back what my thoughts were on proper 12 whiskey you know um and i could tell that the question was being asked in the way that they wanted to hear me say Oh, it's rubbish. It's going to be bad. I've personally never tried it, but I think it is an absolutely brilliant thing for the industry as a whole. I think anything, like you say, that gets more people uh, to drink brown spirits, to drink whiskey, um, is can only be a good thing. And looking at that from the brand point of view, if one of the two million people or whatever the number is that's on Proper 12's Instagram comes to Tomatin eventually, that's a win in and of itself because that's someone that otherwise maybe would never have been interested in whiskey. So, um, yeah, I, I, I personally overlooked that argument when looking at that awards thing. So thank you for uh, bringing that up. And, and it also it, things like that also start to perhaps challenge this idea that whiskey has to be this rarefied and expensive thing. You know, I'm, I'm still actually not sure where I sit completely on this one as it concerns Scotch whiskey, because I think there's definitely something to be said for being having having such a, uh, a presence in the public mind as a luxury product. I mean, that's probably something that I don't think single malt Scotch whiskey should fritter away in a hurry in its uh, in its uh, uh, in its eagerness to to chase every single possible sale, but, but you know, but I think I think brands are being quite sensible and, and developing spectrums across their across their ranges, and obviously they're they're bearing that in mind. But when you do have a little whiskey winning an award, hopefully that means that somebody who wouldn't have gone and spent that thirty five or forty pounds might look at that whiskey on the shelf, see it's at a very reasonable price point, try it. It's actually really good liquid, and that might begin a whole journey for them. That's uh, going to lead them to, um, you know, reading blogs and, and magazines, hopefully, and watching watching uh, live streams. Well, it's something that I've always gone back to and said, you know, the first whiskey that I drank that got me interested in whiskey is not necessarily a bottle that I have in the house nowadays. You know, um, it's all about the stepping stones, and I think that that's you know you tie that back into brands and what they do. Um, it's it's absolutely the way things work. You know, if you look at the Tomatin range as one little segment of the whiskey industry, even within that range alone, you've got your introduction with legacy and 12-year-old. And then you might get to the point that you're drinking the 36-year-old and you probably never drink anything below 18 years old ever again. But it was the legacy and 12-year-old that got you into it. You know? And that's just one example of a range that then you upskill to the whole industry as a whole has a lot of stepping stones for a lot of people. And I think that's why... Personally, I think that's why whiskey is the greatest spirits category in the world, is just how much diversity is available. Exactly. And we're very lucky that it's probably, it's one of the few categories out there that is just, because of its history and because it was one of these products that effectively, particularly with Scotch, was one of the world's first brands, regardless of, of anything else. You know, it, they started, they, they were in the group of um, products that began brand marketing. You know, because of that, they hold this status, it holds this status as an aspirational product it, at different levels. You know, there, there's obviously, there, there's different, uh, different uh, perceptions of different styles of whiskey globally, but particularly with Scotch whiskey, 
an aspirational single malt purchase or even an aspirational blend purchase doesn't have to be something that's tens of thousands of pounds. It, it all depends on where people are in their lives and where they are on their whiskey journey and, 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 and what they want to invest. But we're very lucky to have that. Think about it. I mean, if you put it in terms of the film industry, you know, that if you're a particular fan of maybe a really niche type of film, black and white silent movies or some French art house cinema, these are all paid for because 100 million people went to see The Expendables 9. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mainstream that pays for the niche, yeah? yeah? So it's things like Proper 12 and Hague Club and Whiskey Awards, things in the newspapers. These are all putting money into the industry, which lets us have the things we like. Yes. If we see wrong with that. Yeah, those are the things that allow us to have something to be geeky about. Okay. Um, now, Andy, I'm going to go back to you on this because Tabitha has asked, how do we go about getting non-whiskey drinkers, especially those not stereotypically thought as liking whiskey, to try it? I want to ask you, because you started off by telling us that initially you were never really taken by whiskey. So if you're if you're having a conversation with someone and they say that they don't like whiskey, um, and that whiskey doesn't reach out to them. Say, for example, that the marketing of the whiskey brands that you see doesn't appeal to them. How do you get them into whiskey? What, what's what's the route to that customer? I think we've got to accept that not everyone is going to like whiskey. I, I personally think there is a dram for everyone, but they might never find it. So, yeah, I, I think. I mean, I've had friends who've said, "Right, I, I, what's a good starter dram?" And the first thing they realise is there isn't the same starter dram for everybody just like there's not a dram for everybody. You know, I've had friends that have started on something really kind of nice and light and have hated it. Mm-hmm. And then people who've started on Lefroy 10 and have absolutely loved it. Yeah. So it's more about, I think if you want to get someone into whiskey, the idea would be to go to a whiskey bar or get a tasting set and sit down with various different ones and find out which appeals to them most. Yeah. You know, really try them with yeah. a one or a, I mean, the cliched answer is that, oh, well, we can try it with a cocktail and we can try and ramp it up with this and that, which might work. But I think the idea is if a chef was coming up with an amazing recipe, he would have an understanding of each of the ingredients. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, cocktail-wise, it's great to put whiskey in cocktails. But at the same point, you need to understand what the ingredients are of the cocktail, yeah. if you see where I'm coming with that. So I think been- some people just enjoy outliers in flavor profiles you know so i think that the idea is not to assume there's a starter dram for everybody but if i knew how to get non-whiskey drinkers into the whiskey drinking category i'd be making an absolute fortune for a massive whiskey conglomerate right now exactly exactly and i think um back to tabitha's point you know that's that's a great way of how to get people into whiskey that actually do have a spark of an interest because if they're speaking to you about whiskey the seed is already sown. But going back to Tabitha's point, which is an even bigger question that's been asked by the industry, and like you say, if someone had the answer, um, they'd be making a lot of money. How do how do we reach out to people that are maybe not stereotypically targeted by whiskey marketing? And I think, um, and Chris, I don't know if you agree with this, I think the, the key to that is collaboration across different categories. And I think, you know, going back to it, Proper 12 is a great example. I don't think that... Um, 
your traditional MMA fan is necessarily thought of as the sort of person that will be sipping a single malt whiskey at home. But it kind of it kind of bridges over those various different industries. I've been watching things like the uh, the you know the Metallica whiskey and the Motorhead whiskey and things like that with interest to see you know see what happens there. I mean, I'm what I'm quite pleased to see is that quite a few of these crossover products are actually very good products in and of themselves. They're not just selling themselves off the back of the back of whatever it is. You know, the, a very early example of this, I think, is the uh, Iron Maiden Trooper beer that you see around. And, you know, that's a, that's a really, you know, it had just so happens that all of the members of Iron Maiden are really into uh, camera ales. You know, they're really into traditional traditional ales. And they went away and they had their own beer and it's, it's called the Trooper. And now you see a lot of pubs listing it because it is a nice beer. Um, and I think there's definitely something to be said for said for that. And and best of luck to these uh, these brands that are doing these category crossovers. Um, obviously, there's some uh, there's a few other more unusual ones that that are perhaps on the horizon for whiskey specifically, particularly partnering with luxury. That it's going to be very interesting to see if that works. Um, it still seems to be relatively um, un, uh, untouched soil for. Uh, for, for the whiskey category, you know, it's the, the, the odd crossover has been done, but um, particularly in terms of engaging with other hyper luxury products, only a couple of categories have really been touched so far. It's its own. It seems to be very tentative little baby steps. And you can see there's certain uh, market leaders that are maybe moving in, you know, giving giving it a go. And, and I'm sure uh, based on their success, we'll, uh, we'll maybe we'll be all, uh, I don't know, driving Aston Martins and drinking whiskey. <laughs> Again, wouldn't that be just fantastic? I mean, that'd be nice. <laughs> I yeah. keep hoping that you know maybe they'll maybe there'll be one included in the press pack if we're really lucky. Well, this time next year, why don't we have another one of these sessions and we can compare our high performance supercars that we've got from the whiskey industry? Exactly. A great place to pick up. Um, and maybe we can race whoever ends up with the Balveni Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, I did see that was going for sale. That'll be a, an interesting one to see what that goes for. Um, I, I think specifically on your point about um, about getting people into whiskey, though, and this this is something I, I should have said earlier, really, is that whiskey actually kind of has a head start, and 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 this is sort of ties into my idea about this this presence in people's minds. You know, when and I know I've talked to Andy about this, and I know he's he's had similar experiences. Is that when you tell people that you write about whiskey or you work with whiskey. If somebody isn't a whiskey drinker and, and you're telling them this, quite often, I mean, more often than not, they'll turn around to you and say, oh, that's very interesting. I, I don't drink whiskey, but I'd like to. I mean, what other category in the world do people, I mean, you know, all respect to gin and, and vodka and rum and things like that, but nobody, I don't think that anybody ever says, oh, you know, I would, I would really love to drink that thing, you know, vodka one day, but I'm, I'm not sure if I'm ready for it yet, or I, I think I need to learn some more. And it's, it's sort of a, a mixed blessing and a curse for the whiskey category, really. You know, it has this respect and people almost feel that they need to graduate through other things before they're allowed to drink whiskey, which is obviously ridiculous, but it's also a, a, an interesting, um, an interesting uh, position to be in as a category, and, and not necessarily a bad one. Yeah, I think there's yeah. a line between and intimidation. People would like to like it. You know, people want to like it. So yeah, exactly. That's the important thing. Yeah, they will try more whiskies in an in an attempt to find one that they like, whereas they maybe just something that's maybe a trend rather than an aspirational drink. They'll try once and go, nah, I don't like that. 
but they will keep trying with whiskey until they can confidently go to a bar and say, I like X whiskey, and they just feel that they've reached that kind of nice point, you know? Exactly. Yeah, it goes back to that age-old adage of whiskey being an acquired taste, doesn't it? You know, um, it ties into that very well. Now, I, I said that was my last question, but I've thought of another one, so I'm going to ask it before we go. And that is just a very simple rounding off the evening one. What do you like writing about within whiskey? As a whiskey fan and a history fan, I like reading about the history of distilleries. That's why I found your article on Dalmore fascinating, thoroughly, thoroughly interesting stuff. But is there a part of the whiskey industry in particular that you like researching and writing about? Do you want to fire on, Andy? Uh, okay. Um, you know what? I, again, go back to the very, very start in your first question. The whole thing about whiskey is I, I want to know more but I'm never going to know it all. So I will almost deliberately try, and if there's a blind spot in my knowledge, I will want to learn about that to write about it. So it's almost like a vehicle to enhance my own knowledge. You know, if I'm doing a tasting and I use a certain whiskey, then it's like, right, I'm going to research this distillery, I'm going to research the history. Because I think, as well as people liking flavours, people like facts. People like having little factoids. So they say, right, you like this drum, it's a 15-year-old, whatever but this happened in the history, or yeah. it's using certain casks. They like to have that little fact there. And that's kind of like the, the way in to spark interest. So that's mm. that, That's how I look at whiskey writing. I, it's almost like, in a way, to my own benefit, to enhance my own knowledge. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the pub quiz element of whiskey, you know, the, the little fact here and there. Yeah. Chris, what about you? Um, I, I think I've got I've probably got two answers to that. I mean, I, I love uh, I love conducting interviews with people. I mean, I, I'm very nosy, so I like I like having an excuse to sit down with people and ask them lots of questions that uh, in in quite an intense way that you know that you you probably wouldn't get away with in uh, in in another context. And, and that's not to say that you know I put people under pressure, but. I very much enjoy that process of when, particularly if you've never met the person, um, you, you sit down and you have to work through building up a rapport and getting them to relax and then deciding how much they want to, how honest they want to be with you. And, um, and you know, and, and it's it's very nice when, because obviously I, I'm very, I feel very privileged because I'm very aware that all of these people, particularly, you know, if they're working in industry, they they all have guidelines they have to adhere to in terms of their communication strategy and talking points that they know they have to touch on and and being able to get people slowly away from that and and really find out what makes them tick what their passion for whiskey is and and what their unique story is you know I think being able to share that with other people um is a is a real privilege and I and I hope people uh, you know I hope readers enjoy it as much as I uh, is as much as I enjoy um writing it up I guess on the other side of things, the sort of completely, or the, or the more impersonal side of it, is um, I've fallen down a, a bit of a, a wood hole, <laughs> a cask hole in the last uh, in the last few years um, that got kicked off by a, a trip to Jerez that I took with um, with uh, with Tamdu Distillery. Uh, we followed the full sherry cask production process from uh, from Galicia. Uh, we went wandered around the forests and then and then went uh, went to a sawmill and then went down to the south and saw the full coopering process, seasoning, uh, winemaking, uh, things like that. And and that for me sparked all these new this new set of questions. And I realised that there's only so much information out there at the moment about casks that are used for, for, for maturing whiskey. And actually, if you 
don't have a good knowledge of sherry or wine or rum or or actually uh, wood biology it can there's only so far you can get that you get with that and and particularly when it comes to the wood itself and the influence of wood and how wood interacts with alcohol really you've either got sort of quite basic resources that sometimes are not actually fully accurate or give a quite a simplified view of of how whiskey interacts with wood during maturation and then on the other end of the scale you have academic papers that genuinely require a, a you know a biochemistry degree to understand and uh, and what i've been trying to do over the last few years is uh, is wikipedia enough uh, chemistry terms to understand these things and then sort of translate them. So, so rather than a, a wood expert, I'd maybe call, I'm trying to aim to become a wood translator perhaps and, <laughs> and try and bring some of that information into, you know, I figured if I can understand it enough to be able to convey it in a relatively simple way that doesn't uh, do away with the, the nuance, then, then, you know, fingers crossed, <laughs> fingers crossed. But that, that's definitely a real passion for me at the moment. The cast. Uh, yeah, I, I look forward to reading Maturation for Dummies, uh, which I'm well, sure <laughs> coming soon. <laughs> yeah, gentlemen, thank you so so much for your time tonight. I, that's been a really enjoyable conversation. I look forward to keep reading what both of you write, uh, and I look forward to sharing a real dram with you in the not too distant future. Hope, but in the meantime, with an empty glass, Slanjava. Slanjava. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much for having us. No worries, anytime. Thank you.